0: Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, The Political Generals and the Afghan Withdrawal. The date, August 2021, and my name is Belisarius Avis. During the two days of the Battle of Shiloh, Union casualties were 13,047. These included 1,700 killed, 8,400 wounded, and over 2,800 missing. Confederate casualties were pretty close, but less. 10,699. These casualty rates were among the highest during a remarkably bloody war. And add to this battle, there were always rumors surrounding the Union commander at Shiloh, Grant, about whether his struggles with alcohol affected his ability as a general. According to the WhiteHouse.gov website section on Grant, quote, at Shiloh in April, Grant fought one of the bloodiest battles in the West and came out less well. Nevertheless, President Lincoln fended off demands for his removal by saying, quote, I cannot spare this man. He fights. Unquote. So-called Civil War buffs are legion. Believe me, I have been to several Civil War battlefields, including Gettysburg and Chancellorville, and there is often a crowd now, normal people, in other words, those not-Civil War buffs, have certainly know the name of U.S. Grant, Abraham Lincoln, and Robert E. Lee. But does the name Dan Sickles ring a bell? A good Civil War buff will know that Dan Sickles, who, but for Joshua Lawrence, might have helped the Union lose the Battle of Gettysburg, and maybe even the war, on the second day. Dan Sickles did not ascend to high command by his prowess as a general, but rather as a politician. Another political general who did a little bit better over his storied military and political career was Benjamin Butler. Yet Ulysses S. Grant, who did not think highly of Butler's military skills, ordered him to attack in the direction of Petersburg from the east in the later months of the war. Butler failed. The goal was to destroy the rail links supplying Richmond and thus distracting Robert E. Lee in conjunction with the attacks Grant would make from the north. Although Petersburg was lightly defended at the time, and Butler could have occupied it with little difficulty, he hesitated and allowed a vastly inferior Confederate force under General P. R. G. T. Beauregard to box up the Army of the James, Butler's command, on the Bermuda Hundred Peninsula. Such were just one of the many misses throughout the war that elongated the conflict. But Butler represented a general without formal military experience and was appointed primarily due to political expediency, such as the case with Sickles. There are two other types, though. Those with significant military training who either dabble in politics and those who make decisions based not on military exigencies, but rather political ones. Of this first group, another Civil War general, George B. McClellan, was among the most prominent. After a few minor victories early in the war and following the disaster at First Bull Run, Lincoln elevated McClellan first to the command of the Eastern Army around Washington and later to overall command. McClellan was a brilliant administrator and held particular popularity with the troops. However, the challenge for McClellan was that, having built an impressive army, entitled the Army of the Potomac, he became more concerned with its preservation rather than the destruction of the enemy force. This reluctance to fight resulted in McClellan getting pummeled by Lee in the Seven Days Battles in 1862, and later that year, McClellan's inability to destroy the Confederate Army at Antietam. After this failure and final dismissal by Lincoln, McClellan chose to run against the president in the election of 1864. Given the position and prominence of the role of general It is difficult for them to not get pulled into politics at some point. This overlap was exacerbated during the Civil War because the frontier happened to be the exact location of the government seat. So, when a prominent senator or cabinet minister can have a general over for dinner, the infusion of politics into the military will happen. And add to this, as with any organization, large or small, there is a dollop of politics. For example, I once worked for a company of 35 people, and in some ways, we had the same political nature as at a different stop that I I was at that boasted 55,000 employees. Where you're going to have an organization of people, you are going to have politics. And it is impossible for politics not to become part of the military. But the line, and this is incredibly important, is when the general abrogates military decisions Based on political matters. Okay, but if war is diplomacy by any other means, as Clausewitz stated, then are not the two invariably intertwined? For example, in the United States, military missions are undertaken based on the orders of civilian authorities. And these civilian authorities are primarily acting as politicians and therefore enacting political beliefs. As stated clearly in the Constitution, Our government is constructed to have civilian oversight of the military. Steeped in Roman history, the founders understood that tyranny becomes an easy proposition when one controls an army, and one does not need to go back 2,000 years to understand this concept. Kim Jong-un of North Korea or the leaders of Iran do not hold power based on elections or some form of governmental legitimacy or even religious authority as the atollahs of Iran might wish to convey, no. Rather, they rule because the armies of North Korea and the Revolutionary Guard of Iran have a compact with these leaders. They allow these leaders to rule, and they get goodies. The rest of the population can suffer, but these armies will support the regime if these forces get theirs. Understanding this, The President of the United States, a duly elected office, has the power over the Army. In addition, in the Executive Branch, the Office of the Secretary of Defense also offers another layer of civilian oversight. Even adding to this, Congress itself, through the Armed Services Committee, adds yet another layer of elected authority over the military. Now recently, many of these ministers, the secretaries of defense, have been generals themselves, a trend of which I can't entirely agree, but at least fortunately they have to be retired to assume the office. No general can be secretary of defense and be in direct command of U.S. troops. Part of this dichotomy between the president and his cabinet on the one hand and an active general on the other is to separate the concept of civilian decision making, often based on political matters, and the execution of the mission based on military principles. And it is here that we have seen that breakdown in Afghanistan. In a recent piece for the Wall Street Journal, Peggy Noonan captured the laundry list of absolutely head-scratching, almost bizarre decisions involved in the recent Afghanistan withdrawal. Quote, We don't make up withdrawal dates that will have symbolism for photo ops with the flinty, determined president looking flinty and determined on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. We don't make time-epic strategic decisions around showbiz exigencies. We wait for the summer fighting season to pass. We withdraw in the winter when Taliban warriors are shivering in their caves. We do not leave our major air base in the middle of the night, in the middle of the night, without even telling the Afghan military. We don't leave our weapons behind so 20-year-old enemies can don them for military play acting and drive up and down with the guns and the helmets. We don't fail to tell our allies exactly what we're doing and how we're doing it. They followed us there, and they also paid the price for it. We don't see signs of an overwhelming enemy advance and treat it merely as a perception problem as opposed to a reality problem. You don't get that U.S. military out before the U.S. citizens and our friends. Who will protect them if you do that? Unquote. For a president of the United States to dictate a withdrawal of American troops from a foreign country is undoubtedly and entirely within their purview. Now, it happens to be a decision I disagree with. And my previous two podcasts explain primarily why. But that doesn't change the fact that despite my disagreement, I completely agree that that is, is within the portfolio of a president to decide. And yes, even on political bases. But even factoring in American civilians and Afghanistan allies, how the withdrawal of what is essentially a military operation should have been the decisions of the generals and not the president. Yet this president provided the purely political time frame of a final announcement on 9-11, meaning that the actual withdrawal would be during the fighting season, not during the winter. It was a political, not military decision to use a civilian airport in the middle of Kabul. Kabul is a city of 4.6 million Afghanis, or the equivalent of the size of Chicago. In fact, it's probably even larger than Chicago. Can you imagine trying to do an airlift of an entire group of Americans out of O'Hare when that entire airport would be surrounded by people who might not be friends? It was a political decision, to leave the Bagram Air Force Base and not use that as the main point of departure. The list goes on and on and on. And the bottom line is that all of these mistakes can lead inexorably to political decisions, not military ones. So why did any general or the secretary of defense not stand up to the president or even resign in protest once these political decisions, which should have been military, were made. Why? Because this particular crop of generals is seemingly more interested in politics than the nation's security, or worse, their troops. Now, it is a falsity to claim that there is going to be a permanent security for fighting troops. Like firefighters, the job of soldiers of American soldiers is to put themselves in harm's way. That is why we honor them in the first place. That is why they are so utterly deserving of our respect. Lincoln was not just poetic when he talked of the last full measure of devotion or why he later sacked McClellan. An army exists to deter and destroy enemy armies, and there it is, often problematic to accomplish that without casualties. I do not say that lightly, by any means, but as I have noted across several podcasts, the purpose of the military must be clear, and as I have just stated, it is to deter or destroy the enemies of America. But, and here's again the but, no general worthy of their salt would put their troops in harm's way when a better alternative was at hand. Going back in to protect an airport in a large city, teeming with millions of Afghanis with a single runway is not that choice. How does a general who is thinking of politics over military considerations sound exactly? Well, they would sound something quite like this. I have read Mao Zedong, I have read Karl Marx, I've read Lenin. That doesn't make me a communist. So what is wrong with understanding, having some situational understanding about the country for which we are here to defend, unquote? Stated, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, in his spirited, throaty defense of why they are teaching critical race theory to the army. He continued brusquely, quote, and I have personally find it offensive that we are accusing the United States military, our general officers, our commissioned, non commissioned officers of being quote woke or something else because we're studying some theories that are out there. Unquote. To swat down the inanity of this defense is about as hard as hitting a beach ball with a Louisville slugger. First, There is not a powerful movement to impose Maoism in every one of our public schools. The 1619 Project, which emanates from critical race theory, is currently taught in over 4,000 school districts today. There is no movement using Leninist works to overturn society or castigate a swath of the population as racists. Now, I personally read Mein Kampf. As a historian, it is important work, which, of course, does not make me a Nazi. But I do not seek to impose fascism upon the U.S. population. However, the proponents of CRT certainly do want to impose that theory, that philosophy, upon all American people. And they wish to do it through the schools and through the auspices of somebody like Mark Milley, they are trying to do it through the army. That is the first point. His defense of saying, well, I've read Lenin, but that doesn't make me a communist is, I mean, it's it's basically kind of stupid. Second, the core of critical theory itself. It is based initially on the premise of classism, but the core of it is to divide. And this isn't just hyperbole. The the proponents of of critical theory would say the same thing. In critical theory, there are oppressors and the oppressed. It starts with the assumption that society itself is organized in such a fashion. And it does not take into account at all uh, cultural norms. Of course, it does not take into account personal choices. Given the simple fact that the U.S. Army is composed of African Americans, Latinos, Asians, whites, and other ethnicities, it is difficult to make a case for how a theory that is divisive by design would build a holistic organization in which the dependence on a fellow soldier, regardless of the color of their skin, is literally life and death. However, it is easy to see the advantage for a general desirous of further promotion that can come only at the behest of civilian authorities to embrace the political movement of the day to ensure that advancement. Now, the fact that Milley has served warrants a certain level of respect and admiration. He has made a sacrifice that I personally have not chosen. He has had assignments ranging from the 82nd Airborne Division to the 10th Mountain Divisions, These are probably two of the most alight units in the entire U.S. military. These are pretty good indicators that he is both accomplished and a very tough guy. But there is a difference between being a highly competent soldier and a victorious general. George Armstrong Custer at times performed brilliantly in the Civil War. However, that did not give him special insight when he led his men to disaster at Little Bighorn. Partly, it is a question of focus. During the time that Milley was vociferously defending his stance on CRT, the planning for the evacuation of Afghanistan was supposed to be taking place. The focus was on the one, but by all evidence, not on the other, the more critical role of a general. The fact that a general... And the number one general to boot would not only advocate CRT and defend this position, but do so in an emotional way. tells you that at least one high-ranking member of our military was more concerned with domestic politics than the wisdom of pulling out troops when 100,000 Americans and Afghan allies remained in that country. Despite all of the bloviating about foreign wars, the vast majority of the 1.3 million people currently serving in the United States military, nor the roughly 900,000 in the reserves, is not currently in direct combat roles today. That means that in what is primarily still a peacetime army, the likes of Millie achieved their prominence not through pure competence in battle or logistics, but knowing the way the wind was blowing and turning as if a weather vane. Think this is hyperbole? Then why, after a debacle of such proportions, why has no prominent general involved done the right thing and resigned? None of them. Politics is a grubby profession. To get elected, one must say and do things that may be false or even opposite the nature of their character. Would George W. Bush have, have liked to have gone back in time and take down the mission accomplished banner and then that he had put up in 2003 and then we saw another four years of war in Iraq? Or would Barack Obama have had not stated so forcefully that one could keep their doctor if he could go back and take that away? Politics often make prominent people small. For evidence, read one R. Giuliani. But this grubbiness is why we want and need generals who are focused on executing military missions, not on defending political movements. Being a victorious general, and much of life itself, is about focus. Grant's guide, and that even of his primary lieutenant, William Tecumseh Sherman, was on fighting the Confederates and destroying their ability to wage war, not in overt engagement of politics while they were generals. In Lincoln's own words, Grant fought. I hope you have enjoyed this latest podcast from The Conservative Historian. Please check out all of our other podcasts on our Buzzsprout site. This is Bell Office. As always, thanks for listening.